Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today is from John 2.13-22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews responded to him, What sign do you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hello, Vine family. It is great to be with you. Today is going to be a different kind of message, in part because I want to share something that's been stirring in my heart, in my mind, uh, these last two weeks. In part, it was fueled by one of the daily readings that we've had in the Gospel of John. And so I'm I'm excited about sharing this message today. Because it's a different kind of uh, sermon, I wanted to just share with you my outline. Three parts. The first part will be about Jesus and the Pharisees. We're going to talk about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. Two, Jesus and the sacred act of deconstruction and reconstruction. And finally, Jesus and the reconstruction of our church. One of the things that I've noticed as we've been reading through the Gospel of John is how often the Pharisees are a part of the story. I mean, it just happens over and over again, this complicated relationship that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Now, I haven't been able to find any commentary or scholars that have written about this, but when I was looking through the Gospel, John, I just started just taking notice. And in my rough estimate, I think about one third of the book of John has something to do with an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees or the Pharisees and the people of God. One third. I mean, it happens in the first chapter and it continues to escalate to the very end when they actually have Jesus killed. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. But I've been wondering, like, like, why would John devote so much attention and energy on the Pharisees? This is his only shot to write this story about Jesus. So why focus on this sense of animosity that there is between Jesus and the people uh, that were known as the Pharisees? Well, I believe it's so that in the story of Jesus, there could be this cautionary tale. This cautionary tale, as we see uh, who the Pharisees are in their story, in their future, we can pause and look at ourselves and go, in what ways am I like them? In what ways am I headed towards that future? So I think that's an important part for us to understand and, and look at what's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. So let's take, a, let's take a closer look. At the time where Jesus lived and existed and he had his ministry, uh, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the group of people that everyone was turning to. Uh, they had great influence, great power. Uh, and they understood for them 
what it meant to be faithful to God. So what the Pharisees were known for, they were known for being people of great piety and purity. Like they had such devotion to God that they went above and beyond what God's law even said. And as they went above and beyond, they, they had a sense of pride for the sense of holiness that they were aspiring for. Now, that in itself was not bad. But the problem was, as they went above and beyond, they created this rule book that they didn't only follow, but they also imposed upon other people. And the problem was this, is that God was not impressed by their religious devotion. God was not impressed by how they were trying to influence their power and have other people follow them. Because quite often, when they went above and beyond God's law, they actually went away from the heart of God. They went away from God's intent for people. And this, uh, this became incredibly problematic. So when Jesus shows up and he interacts with these Pharisees and he says things like this, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is an indication of the problem with the Pharisees. They honored God with their lips, with their deeds, but their hearts were far from the heart of God. So when Jesus stepped into the public eye, he actually was really disruptive. To use a chemistry term, think of a catalyst. One thing when it's dropped in changes everything around it. Like, you know, picture dropping a Mentos in a, a bottle of Coca-Cola. Like when you do that, everything changes. So wherever Jesus went, things changed around him. He was disruptive to the status quo. Everything was altered and he was actually really divisive. When he'd step into a community and have some experience, it seemed like he split people in two. Those who believed in him and those who didn't. Those who thought he was crazy and those who wondered if he was from God. Now, what made this hard for the Pharisees, because he was teaching so differently and living so differently than they were, every time he performed an act, every time he taught with power and authority, he was challenging them. He was challenging and threatening their power, their position, and their influence. And the problem was that Jesus didn't only just teach, but he taught with authority like no one had ever heard. And he also performed miracles and sign with never seen before type power. He was truly changing and disrupting everything. And the Pharisees understood what Jesus was doing. He was deconstructing everything that they had built. Jesus does this. Jesus deconstructs and reconstructs the way that people understand God and understand how to live. You see, deconstruction was a critical part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, if you remember the scene where Jesus was in the temple and cleared everything, the Pharisees asked, Give us a sign to prove that you can actually do what you're doing. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. I actually find it somewhat humorous that right after Jesus displayed like this kind of zeal and passion to care and protect for the temple by sending away the money changers and the animals, that right after that, the sign that he offers is for them to tear it all down, to tear down the temple. And I wonder if that's like an image. I wonder if that's like a picture for us for what Jesus is up to. Now I know just from walking with you, I know in my own life, there's many of us who've been in seasons, and if you haven't, it's coming, 
be in seasons where you feel like your faith is being deconstructed. It feels like things that used to be sure seem like they're falling apart and loose. Uh, either it's caused by some wound that you might have received from a church or maybe from a great loss in your life, something that radically shifts your perspective, or maybe it's just simply because what used to work in your religious life no longer works anymore. And because of that, you enter into a time of deconstruction. This thing takes place that takes time and, and you actually start questioning things over again. You enter into a season of uncertainty and it also often leads to cynicism and distrust. I just, I just want you to know that Jesus is in the business of deconstruction. As what we will see in many of our readings, Jesus finds and meets people. He drew graciously towards people and helped them deconstruct their false ways of understanding God and life. And he did that so that he could also build it up again. Whether it was a Pharisee who came to Jesus in the middle of the night or a woman alone at a well, Jesus met people, challenged their framework, and invited them to imagine a new way of understanding who God is and what life truly is about. Deconstruction and reconstruction are just a part of our life with Jesus. And I hate to break it to you, but if you haven't figured it out, God is not the great protector of status quo. If you look at people's lives in the Bible, there seems to be no one whose life was always up and to the left. Instead, their lives were more like roller coasters, peaks and valleys, times where things were built up just to be torn down and built up again. And in the midst of this cycle of deconstruction and reconstruction, we just need to ha actually have the trust and the faith to believe that these moments are like uninvited gifts from God. Just because God, out of, out of his compassion, tears down the things in our life that are holding us back, things that maybe were useful for a while but won't get us where we need to be. And so this uninvited, disrupted Jesus meets us in our life and begins this act of deconstruction. But you, you need to know this, that in your life, God does not do this just simply out of a mistake. He doesn't lead you in a time of deconstruction to, just to, to leave you in uncertainty. He has a redeeming purpose for that. God's purpose is that we could be brought through these seasons of our life so that God can reconstruct something better. But this process of deconstruction uh, is often painful. Many times, uh, we can get stuck in deconstruction and never have the courage to build up again. We can be people who are marked by cynicism and unwillingness to trust, afraid of stepping into the unknown so that we don't have to have that sense of loss again. We just camp out in what the, the rubble of what used to be. But if that's you, if that's you, maybe that's you today. If you're going through uh, just the sense of these religious motions. If you're just going through this empty religious routines, you seem worn down and tired and you don't know if you believe anymore. You, don't, you're not, you are just full of doubts. I just want to just say the words that, that we've read Jesus, that he said in the temple as a bunch of people, this festival happened and so many people were gathering. Jesus declared in a loud voice these words, let anyone who is thirsty 
come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. So this is how I imagine this scene in my mind. So Jesus waits to the last day of this festival when the temple will be the most packed. People from everywhere, from all stages of life, all beliefs. And Jesus waits until this like quieter moment and then he stands up on a table and he screams out, anyone thirsty? Anyone bored? Anyone unconvinced? Is anyone tired of like leaving this place with the same amount of need and thirst and hunger that you brought in? I have an idea. Come to me. Try me out. Receive me. Know me. Walk with me. And I promise if you do that, there will be a satisfaction that comes from within that will never run dry. It's no small thing that Jesus said this at a religious gathering. Not at some place where people were lost and far from God. He was asking if people were thirsty there. In this high holy day, Jesus was wondering if it wasn't doing it for some people. Jesus was deconstructing. He was deconstructing and he was rebuilding a new framework and understanding. You see, Jesus, he is a good shepherd and he wants to lead us into seasons of deconstruction so that we can discover a never-ending, always overflowing provision that is not founded in empty religious uh, traditions, not fixed in particular places or, or holidays or times, but it's found in an active, ongoing relationship with the living God who wants to lead us further into truth and goodness and beauty. So if that was what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago, I wonder what he's doing now. I wonder what kind of work of reconstruction and, and, and rebuilding that Jesus is doing in this moment that feels like deconstruction. So I've been wondering, like, so what's God up to in this moment, in this season? Not only in my life, but you know, also my family, but I've also been thinking about you. I've been thinking about our church what is God doing with our church in this season, as well as like the Big C Church? And I, I want to be really clear. I don't believe that God sent COVID here as a punishment or like a learning tool. Like that's not, that's not, that's not true. That's foolishness. But what I do know about God is that God does not waste suffering. God does not waste difficulty. The most powerful thing that I see in God is he has this always redeeming power that he does in our life where he can take things of great difficulty and show that they can be turned into life. Like he took scars and wounds and Jesus and, and in that place from, from a cross that we find life. And so we see this, this redeeming power that God has. So what is God up to now? A couple weeks ago when we read this passage of Jesus clearing the temple, I sat with it for a while and thinking, Maybe that's what Jesus is up to. Maybe this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus uh, is seeing the way that our culture, and, I, and us, us, us included, how our culture has constructed religious life and out of a great love wants to flip things upside down, wants to turn things right side up maybe. In John's gospel, I was struck with the word that Jesus used to describe what they turned the temple into. And the word was market. They had turned 
the holy temple into a market. A market, which is a place where people go and get the goods and services that they want. A place where you go for that commodity. You go there and you, you take home what you want and you leave behind what you don't. I'm afraid that that market mentality oftentimes is how we enter into our religious life, our spiritual life. Because what I know about consumerism, it has far reaching uh, influence in our life. It is so hard to turn off that consumer mindset when we approach, yes, our churches, when we go there and we, it's exposed by our questions like, does that thing serve me? Does that feed me? Oh, I actually, I actually don't prefer that type of whatever, that program, that worship style. I wish that person was doing it, not this person. And all of it is about what commodity do I want? What, what am I receiving versus the markets that are elsewhere? And even with that, you know, many of us are guilty of piecemealing our spiritual life, our religious life without any sort of commitment to a body or community. For instance, like I like it's almost like living and shopping at a farmer's market. I'll take my teaching from here, the worship music from this place, my community experience over here. I'll get to choose when I volunteer for this thing or that thing and all based on my particular preferences, my tastes. And churches are guilty of fostering this consumer mentality as well. For instance, in seminaries, oftentimes they'll teach a class that will take a whole semester around church growth. And in this class, this really kicked on 1980s, this emphasis, but the whole class, they studied corporations on how to scale their businesses, to expand it, to have a greater market reach, and they apply that to the church. <laughs> they, we are trying to scale the business of church, and the primary way that we do that is through attracting the most people we can to the Sunday morning worship experience. Like that is how we, that's how we do that. And so just for an example, if I would just wonder if you were to study most churches, what is the percentage of time and attention that that church gives on that Sunday morning worship hour where we have a tendency, where we try to market ourselves to reach the most people with an impressive worship service, with a sermon that is, is pulling on the felt needs of people without being manipulative, given by a really charismatic pastor, sorry, I'm growing up my hair, I don't know if that's doing anything. But, but all of this is, is just to, to make the church a place where we are providing a commodity that people want so that we can expand our marketplace, so we can launch that second service or launch a second campus like it's just another franchise. And I'm, listen, I'm all for reaching people with the gospel. This is why we planted the church four years ago. But if the sole reason that the church exists is for more people to come to that hour-long worship experience, I think we've gone the way of the Pharisees. We will succeed in things that don't ultimately matter. Because you know what matters most? What matters most is that we can be a part of a movement, that we can experience Jesus in all of our lives, making Jesus known wherever we go, not just located in the hour of worship, but and help form other people to be followers of Jesus so that we can bring healing to this world. That is the goal of the church. That should be the goal of our church. And this is the lesson that we are now being forced to learn.
This pandemic has challenged the way in which we have constructed and built up our idea of what it means to be church. Me included, me included. And people are now being forced to see church differently as we cannot gather as we usually do, unable to get that commodity, that goods and services that we have grown accustomed to. Churches are unable to continue living with that driving goal of getting more people in worship. I was actually, I found this really helpful, an analogy from a Christian leader and author named Alan Hirsch. He said this, if you want to learn how to play chess, you should start by removing your own queen. Once you have mastered the game without the most powerful piece, then put the queen back in and see how good you are. For the church, the Sunday service is our queen. We've been relying on it too much. Now that the queen has been taken off the board, it's time to rediscover what all the other pieces can do. Though we have lost what we primarily think of as what the church is and does, I think we can now realize that we still have all we need. A living God who invites people like me and you on his mission into this world together. I believe this gracious and disruptive Jesus is looking at ways to turn things over so that he can eagerly invite us, and us, the church, the vine, and the other churches to build our church and our identity and our understanding not on anything else but him. Much like his words, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is actually pointing to a promise. He promises that there will be a day where you should not only expect to experience God's presence in this temple, but it will be torn down and built again in me. Like this is where the sacred is. It's in me. You should expect to encounter God in me. John actually makes commentary about this in the next verse. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They remembered Jesus' words that it'll take three days for Jesus to, to rebuild the temple. It made sense after they saw Jesus crucified on the cross, buried in a tomb, and resurrected again on that third day. All of a sudden they realized that, man, the temple was not rebuilt in stone and bricks. It was rebuilt in the risen Christ who is alive and claims to be the head of the church, still leading the church. And how this is reshaping things for me is this has once again reminded me that our church has never been held in Covington Middle School. Our church has always been in the shared commitment that you and I have together for and with Christ and his priorities in the world. And our worship has never been from 10 to 11, 15 a.m., 10, not 10.20, but 10 to 11.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. No, our worship is every moment of our life. Everything we do is worship. It's not stuck in a time, not stuck in a place. I'm reminded of Jesus' words that we've already read to the Samaritan woman. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Our worship is not restricted to a certain time or place. 
No, the kind of worshipers that Jesus seems to be seeking out are those who are worshiping wherever his spirit is. That's a place of worship. Wherever Christ's truth reigns, that is now a time to worship. So yes, we should be found worshiping in our churches when we gather on Sundays, but I sure hope that we're being found worshiping Jesus in our workplaces or how we're caring for people in our homes, how we're loving on those who are nearest to us. We should be found worshiping Christ by serving those who are the most need, most need, most vulnerable in our community. That, that is how we worship now. It's not bound to a time or place. It's bound to a living Savior who's leading us and guiding us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're getting rid of it. I actually believe that gathering as a, as a community and worshiping Christ together is really essential. But it should never be 80% of why we exist. It shouldn't be 80% of our time and our resources. Nor should it be 80% of your connection to Jesus. He wants something more. He wants to tear down that mindset and build up something new. And I believe that Jesus is doing that in this time. You know, three weeks ago, we kicked out this idea of meeting together in the study of John. And now there's 140 adults that are gathering together who are, are reading scripture, committing to scripture together and discussing and encouraging it. 140 people, that's more people than we've had in small groups ever. That's more adults than we would have in our worship services worship services, even after the second song. We see that like the way in which we're seeing our church, that Christ is moving and, and changing things, building things that are new. I've heard from people who they haven't read, picked up the Bible and read it in over a decade, but they're doing it now and it's feeding their souls. I've heard from people that their families are talking about a life with Jesus uh, for the first time. Even in having breakfast every day, they're just talking about what they're reading, what they're learning. They've never done that before. Even the last couple of weeks, we have seen people uh, join our community, come in and be a part of our community from places of, of brokenness, especially from baggage with churches. And Jesus is redeeming and restoring things. You, you see, we, didn't, we haven't lost our ability to be the church. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's reforming it. He's restoring it. So in this season of our life together, when our routines have been taken away, I hope we see that we still have all we need. We have a living Savior who invites us uh, to know Him and to follow Him. We have a community of love and support. We have a mission for a world that is in desperate need for a loving Savior. And are we, are we just ready to receive this opportunity as a community? Are you ready to receive uh, this gracious disruption in your own life so that Jesus can build something new for you and for us? I sure hope so. But today I just want to end by just asking this question. Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone tired? Is anyone desperately in need of a sense of knowing that God is with them because what's what the, way, the way that they did it in the past is not working anymore? Anyone wanting a renewed and restored and transformed life? Well, I just want to say Jesus' words, come to him, go to him, turn to him. He promises to be with you and he promises to satisfy you from the inside out. May we learn to depend and trust on that kind of Savior. May we be uh, deconstructed and reconstructed in him.